It's Friday, March 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Educators have been experimenting with new grading systems since before the pandemic. But when everything switched to remote learning and students were having a tough time keeping up, many teachers did away with the traditional A to F grades. Some experiments included relaxing penalties for late or incomplete work and retaking exams once an understanding of the material had been established. Valerie Strauss, education reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for the hunt for a fairer grading system. Next, New York is about to let non-citizens vote in elections for mayor, city council, and other local elections. This will not include undocumented immigrants, but is open to about 800,000 green card holders and others authorized to work in the country. Lawsuits have already been filed, and opponents say it could dilute the power of black voters. Aaron Durkin, reporter at Politico New York, joins us for more. Finally, the office romance might have made a comeback, and it happened all over Zoom. Two years of isolation led to many making more connections over video and Slack chats with coworkers. Even for frontline workers, smaller social circles meant spending more time and falling for your fellow employee. Callum Borschers, on-the-clock columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how workplace love bloomed despite being at home. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Kids who need more time to process things and work them through. And what they realized is that putting these behaviors into the grade that's supposed to just show academic progress doesn't really make sense and is inequitable. Joining us now is Valerie Strauss, education reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Valerie. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about this interesting thing that's going on in schools with teachers across the country. Educators are starting to experiment with a more tolerant grading system. They're trying to maybe do away with the A to F letter grades. And what we saw during the pandemic was also uh, pretty interesting, too. You know, we saw the huge disruption that happened. And it was really tough just to do regular assignments, get the grading done uh, effectively. So a lot of teachers were kind of just doing like pass or fail grades, you know, different things. They were experimenting with a lot of stuff. But it seems that this uh, movement uh, has continued, really. And they're just looking for different ways to grade students, making sure that at least the student is learning the material that's cheap among everything there. So, Valerie, how is this working out? It's an experiment that started in in a number of places well before the pandemic and then was really been spurred on by the pandemic because, as you said, kids weren't learning. It was very difficult to give grades based on the traditional metrics because kids weren't going through the regular learning process. It's not so much that they're getting rid of the ABCs and Ds and Fs. It's that they are just trying to experiment with what goes into those grades and trying to make them more equitable. For as far as I remember, I went to school a long time ago, and it's still true that most teachers give grades that include behaviors. And behaviors mean or include things like when do you turn in an assignment and offers the opportunity to do extra credit to show motivation and things that don't really show that you know what you, that you know the material, that you've right. mastered the material. And for many teachers, what they've realized is that it's inequitable for a lot of kids whose home lives are very difficult who can't get homework in on time or for kids who work slower, who kids need more time, kids who need more time to process things and work them through. And what they realized is that putting these behaviors into the grade that's supposed to just show academic progress doesn't really make sense and is inequitable. So the move is to separate the behaviors from that letter grade. And it's also to try to make students 
own their learning a little bit more instead of always giving them assignments. They have to learn how to give assignments to themselves, uh, give deadlines to themselves so they get things done. It also, these experiments, there's not just one, but there's a number of them, but they also include having students uh, have the opportunity to redo material, to redo tests, to redo papers, so that they actually learn what they're supposed to know. And in some places that have been experimenting with it, they're finding it very, very interesting and successful. And other places are very nervous about trying it. They think that they're going to shortchange kids by not, you know, instilling in them behaviors that everybody thinks kids should have. So there's a lot of contention about it in districts around the country. And so what does this look like in practice? You had an example from a AP teacher, uh, for a teacher that was teaching an AP class. And instead of doing this 100-point uh, scale, which, you know, all the way up to 60 points, right, is a failing grade still, they do something more on a 50-point scale where each uh, you get 10 points for each of the letters, A through F. Uh, you know, so you kind of, there's less of a chance to be an outright fail grade. It is kind of crazy for one letter, the F, to have 60 points. So if you are a student who, you know, has trouble with motivation and your first big test is a, you get a 50 on it, that's really hard to come back from. So a kid who doesn't have a lot of motivation might decide they're not even going to try. But a kid who knows that they can go back and try again to learn the material and do better is advantaged by a system that doesn't place so much, that doesn't have that 100 point system and a system that allows you to redo things to show that you know what you know. The bottom line for teachers is is that they want kids to learn. And right. so what is the best system to show that they have that they have mastered the material? A lot of this has to do with the teacher kind of meeting with the student one on one. Tell me what you did wrong. Tell me that you learned from this. Now you get another crack at the assignment. So I, I, that's an important part of it. At least there's an understanding and you can kind of glean a little more if the student did, you know, master the subject, things like that. But that also points to uh, teachers being uh, overworked as well and having needing more time to do a lot of this one on one stuff. Absolutely. And that's why a lot of teachers are upset about it, nervous about it and pushing back against it. A lot of teachers have a lot of students. Class sizes can be very large. And they see that they don't have the time to do so much one-on-one that they would like to do, and they don't have time to remake tests and come up with new assignments. Now, I asked some teachers who have been doing this about that, and they say that can be an issue, but it's also true that they have, they're using the time they spent doing other things doing this now. So they've learned to sort of change their, their workflow it also does speak to teachers who say that small class sizes are important. Valerie Strauss, education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. As a mother of three children, I feared for like education and safety. And I was not going to, I didn't have the right to like make those decisions or elect those people. Joining us now is Aaron Durkin. Reporter at Politico New York. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to talk about this interesting thing. New York is about to let non-citizens vote. You know, it uh, really has the potential to shape local politics. Talking about numbers, we're probably seeing about 800,000 green card holders and others that are authorized to work in the country 
they could become eligible to vote for races uh, like the mayor's race, city council, other local offices. New York has had a history before with letting non-citizens vote in local school boards. That all changed at some point, but this effort seems to be reviving some of that. So, Erin, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is legislation um, that went into effect earlier this year, became law, and starting in December, non-citizens are going to be able to register to vote in local elections. That means people who have green cards or people who are otherwise legally authorized to work in the United States. So, yeah, it's about 800,000 people approximately who will now be able to sign up if they choose to vote for mayor, for city council, for other city offices. It does not, of course, apply to state or federal elections, which have their own restrictions. But in New York City's um, municipal, local elections, these folks will all soon be eligible to vote. And to be clear, this does not apply to undocumented folks that might be living in the city. Yeah, that's correct. There's about over 400,000 estimated undocumented immigrants in addition in the city, but they will not be eligible to vote. Uh, one small caveat to that is the group of people, you know, known as dreamers, uh, who may have been undocumented initially, but they have a work authorization and are shielded from deportation. They are covered, so they will be among the group that is eligible. How much of an impact could this voting block be? Of course, you know, of the five million existing registered voters, that doesn't mean that all of them actually vote. It's actually a small minority in city elections um, that actually will be turned out. So that is going to be a big question. You know, how much outreach will there be and how willing or interested will people be in actually participating in this? And I think it will vary a lot from district to district. Citywide races are one thing, but there are city council districts in Queens, for instance, in northern Manhattan, where a really large proportion of the population are are immigrants, some of whom are citizens, but a significant number who are not citizens but will now be able to vote. So there are particular districts where, you know, this is really going to be an important constituency in choosing, for instance, uh, the the city council member. And when we're looking at some of these voting blocks and these uh, immigrant ethnicities, we're looking at of Dominicans, Chinese, Jamaican, Mexico, Ecuador, Bangladesh. There's a lot of very diverse ethnicities throughout the city. Obviously, you know, New York is so huge. So, uh, you know, we're looking at a lot of these to see, you know, who's going to make an impact. Yeah, that's right. And so you have different communities that have larger representation in different parts of the city, in different neighborhoods. You know, Dominicans historically in Washington Heights have been a large population. You have Flushing in Queens, which have, has a lot of folks from China as well as folks from Korea. You know, you have Jackson Heights and Corona, which have many immigrants from both South Asia as well as South America, different countries there. And The political preferences are pretty diverse. I mean, New York is an overwhelmingly Democratic city, so that isn't going to change. But in terms of the orientation within the Democratic Party, you have some folks who are are very progressive and some folks who who are more moderate or conservative, you know, depending on their own background and their own beliefs and, and context. There is a lot of opposition to this. There's already lawsuits against this. Some people say they don't think it will end up going through. And one of the things that opponents say about this is that it could dilute the power of black voters. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the arguments that was made against this bill um, in the city council uh, when it was debated. And one of the council representatives pointed out, yes, you're giving more power, more influence to immigrants who have come to this country But what about the U.S.-born black voters? You know, she kind of said 
that the black community has already suffered a lot from gentrification, from being displaced from their homes, you know, their businesses and said, but at least they have the ability to elect their representatives and to have a prominent voice in city government. And so the question was, you know, is this a zero sum game? If you're giving more influence to certain people, are you then diminishing the influence of black voters? So that was one of the concerns. You know, right now, uh, you mentioned in the article, there's 11 cities and towns in Maryland that allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. In Vermont, they've just authorized it. San Francisco allows non-citizens to vote in school board elections only. So, you know, this is happening in other pockets of the country. But, you know, with such a big block, such a big city, and New York stands to, you know, if this really does go through, this could have a huge impact on some of these local elections. And that's what a lot of people are looking to, to see how this will all pan out. Aaron Durkin, reporter at Politico New York. Thank you very much for joining us. All right. Thank you so much for having me on. I figured that we would see a significant drop. And in fact, we saw the opposite. The Society for Human Resource Management has, has chronicled an uptick in dating among coworkers during the past two years. Joining us now is Callum Borchers, on-the-clock columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Callum. Glad to be with you. Well, let's talk about something fun, relationships that bloomed over the course of the pandemic, specifically in the work from home set. There were a lot of people that were starting to strike each other's fancies over these Zoom calls that, you know, with the uh, pandemic obviously turned everything upside down for a lot of people, right? And we always have to have to have this caveat, office workers, mostly people that ha- uh, had the chance to work from home. We're regulated to meetings, conferences, everything happening over Zoom and and other uh, you know devices like that. But a lot of people were starting to kind of develop feelings over this, and it's like perfect for this age, right? This COVID era age, right? We're already went through all the uh, online dating and Tinders and things like that. So it's kind of this almost natural extension. All these people you're constantly seeing over the video chats. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about it, Callum. You spoke to a, a number of people that found love during this time. I did, and count me among the surprised because I thought that this you know, socially distanced pandemic period might finally drive a stake into the office romance, which was kind of on the wane anyway. I mean, think about the, the backdrop, right? You know, in the mid-90s, according to some very good research from Stanford, something like one in five couples met through work. But that number went way down. It was like half of that by 2017, because as you just said, you had Tinder, eHarmony, people were dating online. And then you had the Me Too movement, which even further put a damper on office romances because people probably very wisely got a little bit more cautious about mixing the professional with the personal. So that's how we went into the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, you can't be making eyes at the person in the next cubicle over because you're not sitting together. So I figured that we would see a significant drop. And in fact, we saw the opposite. The Society for Human Resource Management has, has chronicled an uptick in dating among coworkers during the past two years. I guess they said a third of workers said they have, they were or have been involved with a colleague. And that was done in January, that thing. So these are relationships that were happening over the pandemic closures and whatnot. Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the couples that you spoke to that went through this. Well, you know, sort of the classic example that I think a lot of folks might relate to is uh, is a couple I have uh, near the top of my story, Gregory Kelly and Marwa Rizki. These were folks who were just friends 
before the pandemic. They used to sort of pop into each other's office and, you know, chit chat. And then when they got sent home, like all of us did, or many of us did, they used FaceTime to sort of simulate, you know, popping into each other's office for a casual chat. And then being separated sort of awakened stronger feelings and each realized like, oh, maybe I, uh, I feel something a little bit stronger. And they got together in a very pandemic style fashion. You know, so Greg, he was texting an, a, another colleague and confessing uh, via text, oh, I think I'm falling in love with Marwa. And this colleague knows the crush is mutual and she screenshots the text message, sends it to Marwa, who's now aware of what's going on and the two of them get together they started with sort of uh you know outdoor walks you know and then finally progressed to indoor dates but th- i mean think about that right i mean you, you get together through facetime and screenshots and outdoor outdoor walks i mean th- this was yeah. the pandemic period and, that and- we were in But I love the way you put it, the COVID era courtship ensued, right? The video chats, then the walks, all that stuff. And uh, now they're, they're moved in, right? Are they getting married? Something like that. They're, they're all, they're all in. They are all, they actually recently got married. So they have already tied the knot. And I tell you one other thing too, it's not even just the office workers. I think that's primarily what I was interested in, but some of these frontline workers who didn't have the option to work from home bonded in a really tough experience. So I, I talked to a grocery clerk in Missouri who fit that category. You know, she, her boyfriend of the past year, they recently celebrated an anniversary together. She told me, look, I, I, we worked together for six years before we had our first date. I thought he was super weird. They were, they were not a couple before the <laughs> pandemic, but then, you know, everybody's social circle kind of shrinks. You spend more time with people at work. They're kind of in your bubble. And she came to really kind of love yeah. his personality and his <laughs> kindness. And so now they are together. You did mention Me Too and other kind of office things, concerns that could happen. There was an interesting poll that said basically three quarters of workers don't have a problem with people dating each other at work, but 77% of them do try to hide those relationships. You know, is this a problem for HR, things like that? I know as long as you're disclosing certain things, it's not usually an issue. Right. But this is such an important part of the story. And I think that it's that concealing the relationship that is so telling. Right. So you get three quarters of people saying, well, in theory, I got no problem with it. But roughly that same number hides it if they are involved with a colleague. And I think that tells you that people feel like there's something potentially problematic or they're a little a little squirmy about it. And that is partly because of HR policies, although several HR chiefs have told us that this doesn't really rank among their top concerns right now because they're dealing with the great resignation and COVID vaccination. Yeah, bigger problems. (laughs) Yeah, they got other things higher on their list. The thing that will always set off alarm bells, I was emphasized by HR folks, though, is a power imbalance. So if you've got one partner who has professional authority over the other, that can be a real problem. But there is some concern about, you know, whether companies maybe are taking their eye off the ball a little bit when it comes to, you know, potentially problematic co-worker romances. And I think something to keep an eye on as we go forward is we've got office returns and then other companies that are not maybe bringing everybody back into the office, but they're going to do more like offsite retreats and stuff, right? So, okay, you can work remotely, but then we're going to get together for long weekends together to have like bonding sessions. And we know from the Me Too movement that that sometimes those are the types of environments where trouble can arise. So it's something to keep an eye on. Callum Borchers, on the clock columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.